Well, we are in part four of our exciting series called Sticks and Stones, and this is the one that you guys have all been waiting for. We, we've been studying through the story of David, leading up to the story of David and Goliath in 1 Samuel 16 and 1 Samuel 17. In fact, if you have your Bible today, go ahead and turn to 1 Samuel 17. We're going to spend a lot of time in 1 Samuel 17 today, but this is, this is the week you've been waiting for. This is the week that we actually get to kill the giant. We get to kill Goliath dead. We're not going to cut his head off yet. We're going to kill his head, cut his head off next week. But this week, we're going to put him down. We're going to kill him. Um, each week in this series, we've had a word that's kind of been a central theme for what we've been talking about. And all these words have started with A to kind of help you remember it. So, so week one, we talked about anointing. Anointing. We discovered that this biblical term, this kind of churchy term, actually means God's favor, God's empowering, God's blessing, and God's responsibility. That when God anoints us, he's anointing us for a purpose. And we discovered that we are anointed to accomplish his assignment. You have an assignment. I have an assignment. Our assignments may be different. Corporately as a church, the, the, there's some overlap there. There's an assignment on City Church. And we are anointed to accomplish our assignment, just as King David, or David the shepherd boy at that point in time was anointed to be king. Week two, we talked about ability, ability, that not only do we, do we have God's favor and anointing on us, but we have some just God-given natural ability that's been placed inside of us. We have some gifts, and we discovered that God wants us to grow our gifts, that we got to work it, we got to develop it, we got to put some time in to harness it and unleash it the way that he designed for us to do. Last week, we talked about attitude. We discovered how to develop a passionate attitude, how to be a person of passion. We discovered that David, everywhere that he went, everything that he did, he was passionate about it. He's running to the battle lines. He's running to his brothers. He, he, he's full of passion in various scenes in his life. And today, I want to talk to you in part four about our approach. Approach. You can write that word down if you want. We're, we're going to talk about your and my approach. And when I say approach, I want to talk specifically about our approach to the attack of the enemy. In fact, I'm not just going to talk about our approach, but I'm going to talk a little bit about the enemy's approach today too. We're going to discover three ways that the enemy tries to approach us, three ways that the enemy tries to discourage us, to, to sow doubt into us, to knock us away from God's purpose and God's destiny for our lives. See, it matters how we approach things, just like it matters how, how you have the right attitude. You can uh, approach things with the right heart, but if you don't approach them in the right way and in the right methods, many times things will not end up the way that God intended for them for you or, or the way that you would want them to. So I want to help you to define and, and refine your approach. Just to catch you up on where we are in the story, David's been instructed to take some food to his brothers. He's got some older brothers who are out on the battlefield. The neighboring nation of Philistia, the Philistines, have tried to invade. They're coming in uh, to attack. And so David's brothers are soldiers, and they're out on the, on the front lines of the battle with the army. And, and David's father, Jesse, calls David to him one night, and he says, Hey, tomorrow morning I want you to take some bread and some cheese to your brothers, and I want you to take some stuff to, to their commanders of their unit. And I want you to come, uh, bring me back a report. How are things going? Find out what is going on out there on the front lines. I don't know how our army is doing. So David gets up, and we found out he got up early, right? Miracle. Teenage boy gets up early in the morning and sets off on his mission. And when he arrives, he hears this rumor that there's, there's this guy 
who's blaspheming God. There's this Philistine champion named Goliath who's calling out the Israelite army, who's, who's calling down uh, insults against God, against their people, who's saying, you know what, send somebody to fight me, and whoever wins, that nation will win. And, and so David is investigating this rumor. He's trying to find out what's really going on. And this is where we pick up the story in verse 26 of 1 Samuel chapter 17. It says, David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine? There's your homework for this week, by the way. Work in the phrase uncircumcised Philistine somewhere into your conversation this week. That's the challenge. You think I'm joking. I want to see somebody do it. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? David's only been out on the battlefield perhaps for a couple hours, maybe even less. And this same guy has been making these same threats, making these same declarations for 40 days. And yet David hears this and he instantly responds to it in a way that no one has responded in 40 years. Why? Because last week we discovered David had a willing spirit. He had a willing spirit. He had a willing spirit in the small things, and now he has a willing spirit in something that's going to turn out to be a life-defining moment for him. Verse 27, they repeated to him what they had been saying and told him, this is what will be done for the man who kills him. So there was two prizes, as we discovered last week, for, for the man who killed Goliath. Saul had declared two things. He, he said, you're never gonna have to pay taxes uh, if, as long as you live, which that's cool. But the, the big prize was he's gonna give the hand of his daughter, Michael, in marriage. And obviously, Michael had to be a hottie, right? Like she couldn't have been ugly. You're not going to, like, offer up the one that nobody wants to marry. That's the prize if you kill the Philistines. Like, well, that's a, like a double whammy. Uh, so I got to marry her on top of this. So obviously she was looking good. Uh, and yet despite the fact that she looked good, despite the fact that nobody would have to pay, or you wouldn't have to pay taxes the rest of your life, this incredible offer, nobody had jumped at it because of the threats of the giant. Everyone was intimidated. And what we discovered last week is those who are passionate are going to receive intimidation as an invitation. And that's exactly what David does. David receives the intimidation completely op the opposite of the way the rest of the Israelites have. And what I want to do in this passage, is I'm going to just see, we're going to see three forces, three tactics of the enemy, three ways that, that the enemy tries to come at David to sow doubt to sow discouragement, to, to knock him off of his destiny. And, and I want to show you how the enemy will come at us in those same ways. And for David, they actually come in the form of three different people. Many times for us, these may come in the form of people. For primarily, I think, they, they come internally. These voices, but most of the time, we're going to hear these from ourselves. Like our, our own heart is deceptive above all else. And our own heart is going to speak these things to us many, many times, as well as the enemy as well. But, but he's going to come to David and try to sow, sow some doubt. Now, the well, first thing I want you to write down today is this. Write this down. Write the constant companion of destiny is doubt. The constant companion of destiny is doubt. You see, David had an incredible destiny, amen? He'd been anointed to be the king. The second king of Israel, he was going to become the, the new standard of what it meant to be a king. In fact, he would go on to become the greatest king that Israel ever had, the greatest human king. And, and so he had this incredible destiny. He was going to go become this legendary warrior who slayed the greatest enemy that Israel had ever seen. His destiny was incredible. We would all agree. And yet, even though his destiny was incredible, that didn't mean doubt 
didn't creep up with an opportunity to knock him off. In fact, I think it's the opposite. I think the greater your destiny, the greater the call of God on your life, the greater the anointing on your life, the more the enemy is going to try to flare up with some doubt. The more that he's going to come. Don't think that just because you hear some voices of doubt, don't think just because you meet some resistance that that doesn't mean that God's hand is on your life. It probably means that God's hand is on your life. It probably means that you're moving in the right direction, that you're doing some things correctly when you come up against some opposition. So David's going to hear some opposition here. The first one he faces in verse 28 says, when Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. David shows up on delivery errand. He hears the, the, the giant just defaming his God. He, he hears the giant calling people out, and, and he steps up, and his older brother immediately puts him down. What's he doing? He's accusing him. He's throwing out accusations. The first thing, the first way that the enemy moves in our life, the first way he tries to bring doubt is the enemy accuses. In fact, the Bible says in one location, it only calls Satan this once, but I think it's one of the, the greatest descriptions of him. It says that the enemy is the accuser of the brethren, the accuser of God's children. Isn't this just like Satan to start throwing out accusations? He starts accusing David of false motives. Yeah, you, you told dad you were going to come out here to deliver some stuff for us, but I know what you're really doing. You just wanted to see somebody die on the battlefield, Right? He starts accusing. Some of you, you've already heard the voice of the accuser this morning when we entered into worship. We entered into worship, and, and, and you already heard that voice. Who do you think you are going to church? You're not good enough to be in God's house. All these other people have it together. Side note, they don't, but the enemy will say that to you. All these other people got it together. All these other people, they, they read their Bible this week. You didn't even open it. Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are to sing? to your God. Who do you think you are to pray? You weren't praying last night. He throws out that voice of accusation. He comes at you just like Eliab is coming at David here. But when the enemy comes like Eliab to drag you down, when, when he comes in that way, I want you to know this. How do I tell the difference between God and how do I tell the, and the enemy, right? Like, how do I know that this is God speaking to me and convicting me or the enemy speaking and condemning? Well, here's the difference. When God convicts you, because maybe you really were sinful last night, and maybe God really does need to deal with your heart. When God convicts you, he doesn't convict you to put you down or to leave you where you're at. He convicts you. He pricks at your heart to cause change. He says, man, that thing you did last night, you need to repent of that. You need to get that right. Right now in this moment, in this atmosphere of worship, as you're drawing near to me and I'm drawing near to you, make this right with me right now. Right where you're at, man, repent. Turn from your sin. That's the voice of God. The voice of the enemy comes to condemn, but the voice of God comes to convict. And if he's accusing you, if he's putting you down, if he's telling you how you'll never amount to anything, how you'll never be any good, if he's saying those things, it's not ever, ever, ever the voice of God. If you have a great destiny, you're going to face great accusations. Be ready for it. I can't imagine what it felt to be David in this moment. Not only was he just running an errand for his dad, but who is the beneficiary of his errand? His brothers. So the very person who he's trying to assist is the one who's throwing out the accusations. Have you ever been accused by somebody you were trying to assist? 
Anybody who's ever raised a teenage girl raised their hand, right? Like, probably a teenage boy, too. Uh, anybody, post, you know, you raised somebody post-puberty, you've had that same person you're trying to bless, that same person you're trying to defend, that same person you're trying to protect, all of a sudden turns on you. and Oh, it hurts. My son is 16 months old. I haven't experienced that yet. My next baby's due in, in less than two months. I haven't experienced it yet. But, but I have experienced it with people who I was trying to help. And they turn on you. And it's like, man. Why did I even show up? Why did I even get up early and leave home to bring you some bread and some cheese so you don't have to eat the nasty slop that they're serving the army? I'm trying to help you out, and you're going to turn on me. And David in that moment is faced with an opportunity to be distracted. He's faced with a chance to to miss out on his destiny. Watch how he responds. You see it almost come out here. You see the teenage boy in David in this next line. He gets it under control real quick, but but he goes, now what have I done? Like you see the, the younger brother reaction to big brother. You're always on me, man. Man, give me a break. Why has this got to be like that, man? Can I even speak? I'm not even good enough to speak in the lives presence, right? Like you almost hear like the sarcastic, like little brother come out. <laughs> no comment even necessary right there. He's identifying with the word of God. Praise Jesus. <laughs> David doesn't know yet fully about his date with destiny. He knows there's an opportunity. He knows there's somebody who needs to step up and nobody else has stepped up. He doesn't know yet that he's going to be the one who gets the chance. He knows he's going for it. But on the road to destiny, the accusation shows up, and David is presented with an opportunity to, to be distracted. And I want you to see that, that the way you and I respond to things, chances are most of us in this room, even if we had the courage that David had, even if we had the passion that David had to step up and say, somebody needs to shut this giant up, I think most of us in this room would have missed it right here because we'd have been diverted by the distraction, by the accusation of Eliab. It's like in this moment, he had the opportunity to, to have his day hijacked. So here's what we would do. We would either get into a long argument with our brother and try to defend ourselves, right? And just waste four hours on the battlefield and you miss daylight and now it's dark and you can't even fight the giant because you got into an argument with somebody else trying to defend yourself. Either that or... Some of us, the, the real maybe passionate ones in the room, would have reacted in such anger and such frustration, we would have thrown the bread and cheese down on the spot and just walked out. Peace out. I'm, I'm out. I don't need to hear this. I don't need to deal with this. I'm not, this ain't even who I am. Or, or some of us would bottle it up. We'd internalize it. One more time, get discouraged by my brother. And, and, and walk away, withdraw from the situation. David doesn't do any of that. I want you to see what David does, and I want to empower you, because the enemy's going to come and accuse. The enemy's going to come and distract. On the road to your destiny, the enemy's going to do anything he can to knock you off of that path. And when that, that happens, here's a great way to respond. It's so brilliant. It's so simple and yet so amazing. Watch what he does. Verse 30, it says, he then turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter, and the men answered him as before. We got to learn the turn. We got to learn the turn. And instead of fighting with Eliab, instead of internalizing it and trying to deal with it himself, David just blew him off. David straight up ignored his brother. Sometimes we just got to learn to ignore the voice of the enemy. 
But he didn't just ignore him. What else did he do? He went to somebody else. Why? Because he knew Eliab wasn't ultimately the one who was going to decide if he got to fight Goliath. He appealed to a higher authority. So the next time the enemy comes at you and starts accusing you, starts pointing at all the junk in your past, you need to appeal to a higher authority. You get to go above his head. Guess what? All that junk, even if it's true, Jesus already nailed it to the cross. You don't need to hear about it. Even if the accusation is on point, even if it's one, even if it's your biography, and that's exactly historically what happened, guess what? If the price is already paid for it, if Jesus' blood has already covered it, it's done. We got to learn the term. We got to ignore the voice of the enemy and quit letting him knock us away from the great destiny that God has prepared for us. David doesn't defend himself. He doesn't let the accusation hijack his day. He just turns away and keeps on moving towards God's best for his life. Verse 31, what David said was overheard and reported to Saul, and Saul sent for him. Remember, Saul kind of knew David because David was the harpist who would come to soothe Saul when Saul got into a rage. So he was familiar with David. Verse 32 says, David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. I love David's courage, but can you imagine Saul's reaction in this moment? Calm down, boy. Like, you're, you're the harpist. And you, you play a good harp, I give you that, but this is a, a warrior out here. This is a guy who's been a warrior from, from a very early age. Not only that, he's huge. I don't have anybody in all the armies of Israel who's willing to fight him. And you're, you and your little harp are going to go out there? You're going to play him to sleep? What are you thinking? Right? Saul's reaction, man, sometimes I just wish I could go back in time and just see some of these things. I bet it would be incredible. We don't know exactly how big Goliath was, by the way. The the scholars disagree on this. There's some who think he was around six foot nine, all the way up to nine feet tall. The reason why there's debate about this is because the language is is kind of ambiguous. We don't have an exact understanding of the measurements that are used in Scripture, exactly how those translate uh, to modern times. We know he was massive. One thing we do know, he he was wearing armor that weighed over 100 pounds. Those measures are are, are accurate. So imagine that. He's basically wearing Pastor Bo strapped to him, right? (laughs) Like just running around in the army, in, in the battle, like it's nothing. He's got a, a dude strapped to him, 100 pounds. So I lean towards the nine-foot interpretation. If you're six foot nine, 100 pounds of armor, you'd have to be really, really strong for that to not even bother you or throw you off. But regardless of how big you think this person was, he was bigger than anybody in this room, right? He, he was bigger than anybody in the Israelite army, army. He was bigger than anybody in the Philistine army. He was the biggest dude on the battlefield. He's the greatest warrior that all of Philistia has to offer. And David is asking the king's permission to fight him. And you got to understand Saul's dilemma here. Because if Saul gives David permission, he's not just risking the life of a young boy, which that's on his head if David dies, right? I just let this kid go out there. It's my responsibility. He's not just risking David's life. He didn't just lose a harpist who's valuable to him. But he lost the whole war. If David loses, everybody loses. David is standing in as the champion for Israel. And so you've got to imagine Saul's, Saul's reasoning for doubting and for questioning David here. And so he replies in verse 33. He says, you are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. I wonder what the devil's been telling you that you're not able to do this week. 
doesn't he start a lot of sentences out with that? Isn't that one of like his favorite go-to lines? You're not able to do this. You are only this. There's somebody in this room that, that you've heard, you are not able to serve God anymore because you've got, you got a divorce in your past. You're only a divorcee. You can't be used by God. There's somebody in this room who feel a stay-at-home mom who's thinking, you are not able to make a big difference for the kingdom. You don't even have a job. And the enemy's lying to you. And he's, he's dissing you, and he's saying things to you. The enemy is so good at starting things out with, you are not able. And I want you to write this down. This is the second way that the enemy attacks us. The enemy belittles. First of all, he accuses like Eliab. And secondly, he belittles like Saul. He reminds you of, of your weakness. He reminds you of your inability. He reminds you of how small you are compared to the task at hand. Some of you in this room, you've got a vision from God. You've got a passion from God. There's a calling from God on you to make an impact in your community, at your workplace, on your campus. There's something in you that God has placed, and, and it's bigger than you. And the enemy's constantly reminding you that it's bigger than you. But I'm here to tell you it's supposed to be bigger than you. If it's a God dream, if it's a God calling, it's going to be bigger than you. It was good news that Goliath was bigger than David because that meant David needed God's help. So the enemy, the voice begins to speak, and he begins to belittle. I wonder what's been belittling you lately. Accusation cuts at your character, but, but belittling cuts at your ability. You're not able. You can't do this. And what's interesting is that most of what Saul said to David was true. Saul wasn't lying. David was large. Excuse me, Goliath was large. David was not, right? So Saul wasn't making things up. He wasn't distorting the picture. He was speaking things that in the natural were true, but his perspective was still off. So how does the little guy David respond here? Verse 34, but David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. Well, that's good news. You don't just play the harp, but you keep sheep too. Man, you're perfect. I, I take it all back, David. You're, you're a good little shepherd boy. You're hardcore. You realize how ridiculous that sounds, right? It's like, I'm good with computers. I'm ready to play in the Super Bowl. Uh, I keep sheep. I'm ready to kill the giant. Saul's like, come on, kid. You're, you're not helping yourself here. But David goes on to explain how he was not just simply keeping the sheep. He was growing his gift. He says, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried it off a sheep from the flock, I went after it. I went after it. I love that line. David says, I went after it. You know my heart for our church, City Church? I want us to be a church that goes after it. We're going to get it wrong sometimes. We're going to trip up sometimes. We're going to miss it sometimes. We may say some things that aren't accurate sometimes. You might be trying to tell somebody about Jesus, and, and you butcher a verse, or you get something wrong. And you know what? Let's get it right. Let's, let's strive to get it right. But I would much rather miss in motion than miss by being passive. I want us to be a church that goes after it. I want us to be a church that goes after God's best. I want us to be people who go after God's calling on our life. I don't want us to just sit back. I want us to be people who say, you know what? There's a bear there. There's a lion there, and they're trying to hurt somebody that I love, and I'm going after it. And David said, whenever that, that bear came, whenever that lion came, I went after it. I struck it, and I rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Not so ridiculous anymore, right? Not, not such a weak little shepherd boy anymore. 
hand-to-hand combat with a bear. You bad, dude. Grabbed a lion by his hair and killed it. You crazy, but you bad. Says your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine, there it is again, another opportunity reminds you. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The same Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Boy, got some faith. He believes that God will show up. You see, when the enemy points out the size of your giant, when the enemy shows points out your lack of ability when he belittles you. Here's the great news. It doesn't matter how big your giant is. And it doesn't matter how little you are. Because it ain't about you. David says, here's what I did. I've got a resume if you want to check my resume. I've got some history. You want to check my references? You want to check my background? I've killed some bad things. But ultimately, it wasn't because of me. It was because the God who rescued me. And if that God will rescue me from the hand of the lion, if he'll rescue me from the hand of the bear, I promise he'll rescue me from this Philistine who's talking crap about my God. I'm not going to let this go down. And he steps up, and he goes out, and he does something incredible. I love the Bible. I love this story. This thing just preaches itself, doesn't it? If you can't preach David and Goliath, you shouldn't be a preacher. Like, like this is not difficult. Man, I get fired up for this. I've been looking forward to this message. This is like the key message in the whole series where it all comes together. Verse 37, Saul, the same guy who four verses ago was belittling David, was talking down to David, was telling David all the reasons why he couldn't do it. Listen to his response. Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. All of a sudden, Saul's getting some faith. You're our best shot. You're our best hope. You're our Obi-Wan Kenobi, right? We got one chance of this. There's a lot going on. Of course, like I said, because if David fails, it's not just David going down. It's, it's everybody. But all of a sudden, Saul begins to, to believe. He begins to have faith, and he allows David to go. But he says, we got to get you ready. So verse 38, then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I am not used to them. So he took them off. David couldn't go in Saul's strength. He couldn't go in Saul's anointing. He couldn't go in Saul's armor. He couldn't go in Saul's ability. He could only go in his. And David recognized very quickly, I I can't be you. If you go back in 1 Samuel, we discover that, that Saul was a head taller than all the Israelites. So his armor didn't fit right. It was not made for David. David said, no, this isn't me. So verse 40, then he took his staff in his hand. That's a stick. He chose five smooth stones from the stream. So we got sticks and stones right here, verse 40. Put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. There's that word, approach. We're going to watch how David approaches the Philistine. You know, I think it's important to realize why David approached the Philistine. He did it for the glory of God to protect and defend the name of his God. But I also think it's important to see how David approached the Philistine. Because here's the truth. You can love God, but not walk in victory. You can love God and walk in discouragement. You you can love God and, and miss. You can love God and fail. 
And yes, it's most important is for us to love God. We talked about passion last week. The greatest commandment is that I would love the Lord my God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind. Yes, we need to love God, number one, above all else. But God doesn't just want you to love him. He wants you to win. He wants his people to be victorious. And so the approach is very important if we're going to walk in victory. Lots of people in reading this story, they, they kind of think of David going out with a slingshot, right? Because that's our modern equivalent here. Like we picture like Dennis the Menace knocking, you know, car windows out. Uh, that, that's not what David is doing. He doesn't have a rubber band behind two pieces of string that he lines up just right and hits somebody in the forehead. He's actually got quite an incredible weapon, a very sophisticated weapon. The story, of course, is the classic underdog story, right? It's the classic story, so much so that inevitably in March when the college basketball tournament gets here, there will be some one seed, Kansas or Kentucky or somebody, and they'll face a number 16 seed, Southwest Missouri Valley State Institute of whatever, with seven names that you've never heard of, and some announcer's going to say, it's David versus Goliath, right? Like, it, it's, this story is so transcendent that it's worked its way into our everyday lexicon. It's something that we use in speech. It's the ultimate definition of an underdog story, but, but there's a man named Malcolm Gladwell, and, and Malcolm, I don't believe, is a believer yet. I, I know that there are Christians who are working on him, but Malcolm wrote a book called David and Goliath, and he approached it from a very secular perspective, but in this perspective, he raises the question, have we seen this story wrong? Was David actually not really the underdog? Was David actually really the favorite if we really understand what's going here? And so, so I want to share with you just a little bit of, of his research and a little bit of what scholars would teach us. At this day and age, there were three types of warriors in the Middle East, three types of warriors in Israel. There, there was cavalry, those who would ride on horses. There was infantry, those who would go in for hand-to-hand combat, swordsmen. Goliath was infantry. And then there was artillery, bow and arrows, primarily archers, uh, and then what we call slingers. This was not just a kid out in the field messing with some rocks. This was actually a position in a Middle Eastern army. Uh, It was a very sophisticated weapon. In fact, uh, historians tell us that those who were good at at operating a a sling, that they could get up to somewhere between seven and eight revolutions per second as they whip that thing around. I can't even move my hand that fast. I don't know how they can move, right? So so they're like, you know, I guess this is how somebody discovered how to build a helicopter because somebody's spinning that thing so fast around. Uh, And and yet they would still be able to be somewhat accurate with it. Now, I think David's accuracy is is God-given in this moment. I don't don't think that you could be that accurate. Uh, but, But there was an ability for some accuracy. And so these slingers were pretty impressive, but they had one requirement. If you're going to use a sling, if you're going to use a bow and arrow, you want to stay away from the infantry. You don't want to get too close. Your advantage is your reach. Your advantage is your distance. Your advantage is I can hurt you from here. I can't let you get to here. So we have this swordsman versus the slinger. Verse 41, meanwhile, the Philistine, the swordsman, the infantry with his shield bearer in front of him. Stop right there real quick. I got to tell you an interesting theory. Uh, There are those who think that the same condition that caused Goliath to be so large, likely an overactive pituitary gland, but there there are some (laughs) other things that cause uh, gigantism. Uh, There are those that think that the same condition actually caused his vision to be impaired. Uh, And the reason why he had to have a shield bearer, because this was not common in this day and age, 
the reason why he had to have a shield bearer is he couldn't see stuff from a distance. He couldn't see the artillery. He couldn't see the bow and arrow coming. He couldn't see the sling coming because it was so far off. And so he had to have somebody carry a shield to help him get close enough where if he could get close to you, you're dead. And so that's what the shield bearer was for. That was his purpose. That was his reason for existing. It says he kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. Little more than a boy. Here we go again. Goliath, not even having to say it out loud, just in his own mind, is belittling David. But he's belittling him so, so clearly that people can tell. He's like, oh, that's, that's just a kid. He's little more than a boy. And we're about to see the third thing the enemy does. He accused, he belittled, and in verse 43, we're going to see number three, the enemy provokes. He provokes. Verse 43, Goliath said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. You son of a Bethlehem shepherd man, right? Like he starts talking all kinds of stuff, starts hailing down curses on David. Verse 44, he tries to provoke him. He says, come here, and I will give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. God is not wrong. If David comes here, that's what's going to happen. If David allows the enemy to provoke him, if David allows him to distract him from his battle plan, from his approach, if he allows him to, to get him close, David's a dead man. But once again, we saw David turn from the accusation. We saw David deflect the focus back to the bigness of his God when he was belittled. And now we're going to see David's approach when it comes to being provoked. He's not going to let the giant draw him in to hand-to-hand combat. So this is what you have to know. This whole series, like I said, was a setup to get you to this moment to help you to realize this. You're not a swordsman. You're a slinger. And if you can keep the enemy at a distance, he can't touch you. But it's the only when he can provoke you. It's only when he can draw you in. It's only when he can distract you from what God has for you. That's when he can harm you. And we're going to fight to keep him at a distance. I'm going to show you in a little while how we can do that. So Goliath's provoking David, but David knows who he is. David knows what he's called to do. He has an uncompromising plan, an uncompromising purpose. I don't care what Eliab says. I don't care what Saul says. I don't care what Goliath says. I know what God has called me to do. I know what God has gifted me to do, and I'm going to work in my gifting and my anointing. And I'm not letting anybody knock me away from that. So Goliath's closing in. He's bigger than the man of God, but David knows There's more to it than simply that. Verse 45, David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Again, David doesn't even say, I got a rock and I'm about to knock you out, right? He says, I'm coming against you in the name of the Lord. This is whose victory this is going to be. This is who's going to enable me to defeat you. Verse 46 says this day, everybody say this day. He's not putting it off to tomorrow. He's not listening to 40 more days of this nonsense. This ends today. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. I love this guy. He's like the Richard Sherman of the Old Testament. I'm I'm taking you out, and I'm cutting off your head, and there ain't nothing you can do about it, big dude. Take that. I love it. I love it. I love it. But this is... This very day, I'll give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know there is a God in Israel. 
Why does God let you fight battles that are bigger than you? But it's right here. So that the whole world will know that you serve the one true God. Why, why does God let you go through the things that you go through? So that you will stand up and fight just like David did. And that God will give you victory. And as you get that victory, there's no denying who brought it to you. So that the whole world will know. David says, this, this is why I'm out here. He says, yes, yeah, Saul, it's nice that you offered your daughter. Uh, she's cute. She ain't worth all this. I'm not putting my life on the line for her. Yeah, it's cool to not have to pay taxes, but I'm a teenager, and my dad pays me, so I'm not making any money right now anyway. So the tax thing isn't really a big draw to me. But there is something that is a big draw to me. That's the glory of God. And I am going to see my God glorified so that the whole world will know there's a God in Israel. Verse 47, all those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. There's that passionate attitude again. David runs quickly to the battle lines to meet Goliath. But watch, he doesn't get any closer than the battle line. In other words, he got close enough where he was in range. But he didn't go up to him for hand-to-hand combat. He got close enough where his weapon could strike him down. And as soon as he got there, he planted right there because he's a slinger. There's somebody here today, maybe, some, maybe many somebody's here. You're fighting the war, the right war, but you're fighting in the wrong way. And I'm going to help unpack that in just a minute, what that means. But, but I want you to know that there's a right way to fight it, and we're seeing it right here. Verse 49, reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it. He got five stones, but he only needed one. Why do you need five stones? Well, there, there are some scholars who think that Goliath had four brothers, and, and so he needed four more to take out his four brothers because they were going to come for revenge. I don't know. It's a cool theory. The Bible doesn't say that. I knew, do know this. He only, it only took one stone. It took one shot. He knocked him out. You know, there's a lot of stuff that comes against you, a lot of accusations, a lot of belittling, a lot of provoking, a lot of Philistines. But you only need one weapon, the word of God, and you will overcome them all. So the boy took his sling, he took his stone, and this is what we have to do when the accusations come, the belittlings come, the provokings come. We've got to take that sling, we've got to take that weapon, and we've got to strike the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. I get happy when I read that. I love that. It's a great story, isn't it? Like, it's just cool to see the way that God did this, to see the, the way that God brought himself glory. But it also reminds me of a verse in Colossians. See, because David is not just an individual. He's a type. He's a foreshadow of Jesus. He's an ancestor of Jesus, but he's also a foreshadow. Uh, and, and so he foreshadows how Jesus is going to come and destroy the enemy for us. And I want you to see this in Colossians 2.15, just like what David did right here to the Goliath. Colossians 2.15 says, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he being Jesus, made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. <laughs> just like David made a public spectacle of Goliath, Jesus made a public spectacle of your sin and your shame and your enemy, and the voices that come against you to accuse you, to belittle you, to provoke you. Two sticks were enough to change the world that Jesus hung on. 
sticks and stones. That's the point of the series. Second Corinthians chapter 10 says this. We're almost done, guys. Hang with me. Give me five more minutes. He says, for though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. We don't fight the same way that the world fights. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. Paper might be rock, and rock might be scissors, and scissors might be paper, but a sling beats a sword. And the word of God overcomes all the weapons of the enemy. No weapon formed against us shall prosper. We do not fight with the weapons of the world. On the contrary, our weapons have divine power to demolish strongholds, to kill Goliath. And then he says, we demolish strongholds and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. That's who we are. That's who we are. We're slingers. The slinger will beat the sword if we don't get too close. He can accuse, but he can't destroy. He can belittle, but he can't distract us if we don't let him. He can provoke, but he can't make us come to him. Blake, come up here real quick. A little help real quick. I didn't give Blake any warning on this, so he has no idea what's about to come. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to try to hit me. Come on, you can do better than that. Come on. I know, that's the point. Uh, okay, okay. Just, just see if you can just reach. Okay. He, he does have long arms. This, it isn't working. So I should have picked Noah. Uh, <laughs> next service, Noah, it's you. Okay, try it again. Okay, he can get to me. That didn't work. Go sit down. You ruined it. Uh, just kidding. The point is, uh, the point I'm trying to make is, is doesn't matter what the enemy's weapon is if he can't get it to you. If his reach is too little, and yes, Blake could touch me, but he really couldn't hurt me, thankfully. Uh, he's like, yeah, I could. Uh, <laughs> if the enemy can't get to you, if he can't touch you, it doesn't matter what he's coming at you with. And, and the point is not that David was smaller than Goliath. The point was because of the sling, David's reach was greater than Goliath's reach. He fought with the weapon of the air, and we have a weapon from above. And 2 Corinthians says, this is how we fight. We don't fight with the weapons of this world. We fight with the weapons from above. It's one thing when Saul doubts you, but what are we going to do when you doubt yourself? Remember, I told you at the beginning of this message, a lot of times the voices will come from outside, but the biggest voices are against, from, from inside of ourselves. So what do you do when you doubt yourself? It's one thing when, when Eliab uh, accuses you. What happens when your own heart accuses you what happens when that accusation is in your own mind it's one thing when Goliath provokes you what happens when your own heart provokes you let me tell you what to do use your weapon use the word of God it says to take captive every thought you see the greatest battles we face are not going to be in a valley of Elah against a giant the greatest battle you face is going to be right here this is where it all starts. This is where it all matters. If we can win the battle right here, if we can begin to wash our mind with the word of God, to begin to renew our mind with God's word, to begin to get his thoughts up here instead of our junk, then when those accusations come, they're going to bounce right off. We're going to have a response. We're going to be able to, that's not what the Bible says about me. Yes, I might have sinned, but the Bible says that I'm the righteousness of God in Christ. We're going to be able to stand up against the accusations, the belittling, and the provocations of the enemy. I don't know about you, but, but a lot of times stuff piles up on top of me, and I can get a little overwhelmed. 
Even today, I'm up here preaching, and what am I thinking about? I'm not just pre- thinking about this message. I'm thinking about the sermon I got to preach next week to wrap up this series, and I'm thinking about the series we're starting in two weeks, and I'm thinking about city groups that are starting, and we got to find these host homes, and I'm thinking about the fact I got another baby coming in seven weeks, and oh my gosh, I'm not ready for that, and, and all this stuff just kind of piles up on top if I'm not careful and kind of rattles around in here, and what I've got to do is I've got to wash my mind with the Word of God. Got to put God's word in there, and I can take those thoughts captive, and I can control the situation. Instead of worrying, I can go to war. And you see, if if the enemy can get you to worry, if he can get you caught up in, in stressing out about stuff, he can paralyze you. If David was worried about, well, what happens if this stone misses, and I've only got four more shots, and then what am I going to do, and what's my escape route? If he would have been paralyzed in fear, and the giant would have got to him before he ever got a shot off. But David didn't let the worry pile up on him. He went out there with the weapon he had and he used the weapon he had. And so I'm telling you this week, when the enemy comes and attacks you and belittles you and discourages you, use the weapon you have. Use the word of God. And when that happens, also, Psalm 47.1, we sang this song earlier, but I had to throw this in here. I love this so much. It says, oh, clap your hands, all you people. Shout to God with the voice of triumph. Why do you have a voice of triumph? Because you're a triumphant person? No, because you serve a God who's triumphant. And he can triumph over anything that you face. And so it says, shout to God with the voice of triumph. There's, there's somebody in here who's, who's fighting the, the right war with the wrong weapon. You're trying to fight this relational war, and you're trying to get back. You're trying to gossip about them. You're trying to discourage them. You're trying to get on them. You're trying to put them down. There's, there's somebody in here who, who you're fighting this relational war, and you're trying to, to, to get back in the same way that they're hurting you. And guess what? That weapon's not going to work. That weapon's not going to win. God didn't call us to fight that way. God called us to fight differently. And if we resort to fighting battles the way the people around us fight, we're going to lose. God didn't intend for you to lose. God intended for you to walk in victory. Amen? So as the enemy attacks you this week, come back with the weapon he's given you, with the word of God, as he accuses, as he belittles, as he provokes, and let's celebrate and shout unto God with a voice of triumph as we begin to discover victory. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for, for the opportunity to speak to these awesome people.